Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the World Health Organization's chief scientist is advising against people mixing and matching COVID vaccines from different manufacturers. Now, many Canadians are now confused and upset by this announcement as we were assured of the decision a few months ago. Is this going to cause further vaccine hesitancy? Ontario plans to build more than $60 billion in transit projects in the next decade, but with the pandemic, a looming labor shortage, and the cost of the projects, are they going to be on time? We'll get into that. And Premier Doug Ford's controversial new campaign finance laws being challenged again in court by the unions. Duff Conagher, the co-founder of Democracy Watch, would join us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about vaccines. And what some people are concerned about is mixed messaging or their perception of mixed messaging about vaccines, about mixing vaccines, about whether or not we're going to need a third shot, and on and on it goes. Now, the World Health Organization's chief scientist is now advising people against mixing and matching COVID-19 vaccines. It's a bit of a shocking statement for a lot of us. Global News Health reporter Jamie Marocker has the details. The WHO's chief scientist calls mixing and matching COVID-19 brands a, quote, dangerous trend. This comes as thousands of Canadians were told doing so with a viral vector vaccine such as AstraZeneca and an mRNA vaccine such as Pfizer and Moderna was recommended. mRNA mixing due to a delayed Pfizer shipment was also touted as safe by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, although studies have been extremely limited. Infectious disease physician Joanne Langley says there's no evidence to suggest mixing these vaccines is harmful to one's health. The options available to Canadians right now are ones that are taken in the best interest of Canadians in controlling the pandemic. Experts we spoke with say while there aren't a ton of studies on the subject, they are shocked the WHO would make such a comment, adding it could greatly erode public trust. Jamie Rocker, Global News. So what do we take from this? What is the takeaway on this? Uh, are we confused about this, or is this just a variation on the same message? Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Brian Lichty, uh, Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine with McMaster University's Immunology Research Center. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be back. Let me ask you right up front here. The government, uh, in, in response to what the World Health Organization said, uh, we will continue to follow the science. Uh, are we getting mixed messages about the science here? Well, I guess we are, but you have to remember who the speaker is whenever you hear something, right? Mm. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm actually surprised this that this hasn't been pointed out, but this is my take on, on on what's going on here. The World Health Organization speaks to the world, right? Um, mm-hmm. Not just to Canadians. And and outside of Canada, remember there's there's a bunch of different vaccines uh, that are being used. Um, from Russia or China um, or India or Cuba or, you know, there's a bunch. And um, they haven't been tested in combination or mixed and matched. So there's way more options in some places than here. Um, and and if you read the, the statements from the, Double Health or, the World Health Organization, what they're saying is they don't want citizens to themselves to start making decisions about mixing and matching or whether they should go out and get a third or even a fourth dose or, or, or anything like that, because none of that's been tested. So they're worrying about the kind of willy nilly mixing and matching of things that haven't been tested in combination. Whereas in Canada as we're well aware, um, there's fairly clear guidance about what um, is available and allowable and if you go get another shot, you use your health card and they know what you've had before. And we can't c- 
everybody go do whatever we want, right? Mm-hmm. So these these are very different situations, and so it's understandable that the World Health Organization is worrying about what they're worrying about. It doesn't exactly apply here, uh, and the combinations that have been um, allowed and even recommended here have been tested uh, in, in in Europe before um, the recommendation uh, was made here to go ahead. They do address that, but your point's well taken because they were rather, uh, I guess, uh, generic about this, uh, suggesting a second dose of any uh, Pfizer uh, biotech vaccine, uh, limited data about interchangeability of mRNA vaccines. And, and that basically is Pfizer and Moderna. Is, is there another uh, MN vaccine like that under a different name someplace else in the world? No. Um, those are the two mRNA vaccines. So when they're talking specifically about mRNA, they are talking about the ones that are available here. Mm-hmm. But there is um, a growing amount of data about uh, the interchangeability of those two, and you can mix and match those guys. So um, I would disagree that there's limited data on that. I think there's a decent amount of data for those specific vaccines and, and for the the recommendations that have been made here by NACI and uh, Health Canada and the government's. Because the recommendation we got from our officials, doctor, was based on a, some work that was done in the UK, was it not, where they had done this and, and with what they thought was some pretty good results? Yeah, some of the first um, um, switching or, or mixing and matching was between um, the AstraZeneca vaccine and either of the mRNA vaccines, mm-hmm. and that started in England, because that, those were the vaccines they had in abundance um, early on. Uh, but mixing and matching has has occurred in other European countries, uh, Spain, and I think Germany's done some of this. And so there's other data about um, I think each of the possible combinations. Um, and now, of course, you know a lot of Canadians have uh, had um, a mix or match <laughs> pairing, and um, there's been no uh, detected uptick in any problems and um, as they're monitoring immunity um, in various countries, they're finding that actually switching between the, the main approved ones, so in our case, really just the mRNA vaccines, um, is not detrimental. If anything, it, it may be a, a, a superior vaccination schedule than uh, using the same one twice. I heard that information too. That's why I was kind of puzzled by the, the the word from the World Health Organization suggesting that there isn't a body of work to, to substantiate this. But there may be some truth to that. I guess a little bit of truth, then, Doctor, because this is a work in progress, isn't it? As as we continue along this path with vaccinations. Yeah, yeah, um, to some degree, um, and you know, different jurisdictions are further along that path than others, um, and and. And even then, it was sort of the language was around worrying about uh, people or citizens, individuals making um, these choices in different countries about, you know, what they're going to take next and how many doses they're going to take. Even some, you know, they're worried that some people were in in jurisdictions where, um, let's say, things are, are less regulated and if you've got the money, you can get what you want sort of a situation. They're worried that people are going to um, do any of the various possible things, and including taking third and fourth doses when, you know, 
right now there is no information about whether anyone will need that. So I think there maybe this was a bit of a nudge to get uh, maybe other governments to um, put in clear guidelines and have rules within their jurisdictions about uh, how this all works. Because it certainly does, things like that don't apply here. We Canadian mm-hmm. citizens, um, w- it would be very challenging, I think, for somebody to go out and, and, and right now get a, a, a third dose in Ontario. So. What is happening with supply? I, I know that the Canadian government announced yesterday that we were sending, uh, donating uh, a good deal of AstraZeneca vaccines to, to some third world countries. And, and, and that's, that's a great news story because the more people, as you've told us, in the, around the world that get vaccinated, the better we, chance we have of controlling this pandemic and the virus. But is, is the concern there that, okay, it, whatever country receives this stuff, uh, AstraZeneca, don't mix it with something else? I mean, it, because the regulations may be different, or as you say, maybe a little more lax than they are here. Because we've heard all sorts of stories over the last number of months, I suppose, about vaccine shopping, people figuring, you know, I want Pfizer as my second dose. Well, it's not really compatible. So uh, are people holding out, which is maybe one of the reasons why we're starting to see some of the vaccination levels level off? Um, I, I actually don't know. What's leading to that? I think there's still pretty good vaccination rates in certain areas. You know, it was in the news um, a bit the last several days that Waterloo Region, where they had a you know mm, yeah. outbreak of the Delta variant, that's compelled people to go out and get vaccinated. They've had a decent uptick in in vaccine acceptance and uptake. Um, there's we're going to run into, and, and it's different everywhere in the world too, uh, a point where you you're left with those people who, who may never get vaccinated or are very vaccine hesitant and things will definitely slow down. And, you know, in some States that's, I think that's in the 30 to 40% range of adults are, are fully vaccinated and they may not go beyond that, but those are the States where they're seeing, um, you know, an increased number of cases in the hospital again, as the Delta variant shows up Mm -hmm. in those areas. Um, so maybe it's slowing down here. I, I haven't really had overall that impression. And, um, you know, the government knows that uh, we now have a decent supply of mRNA vaccines. So that gives them the luxury to um, take a vaccine that they've already bought and have in hand that we may not use now, like the AstraZeneca shot, and um, and donate it to countries that uh, we have agreement or we made agreements with earlier on to help them out uh, so they can get vaccinated too. We said that with the American government too. and, and, and mm-hmm. they, I guess they never actually used AstraZeneca in the United States, but they were certainly producing it. Now they've shipped that off, which, which is, I say is good news. Is, is part of the reason for the statement from the World Health Organization about supply though, doctor? Uh, for instance, they also talked about this possibility of third doses, and I want to get your opinion on that in just a second. But uh, they recommended not getting third doses, but they seem to tie it to the fact that there are some regions in the world that just don't have the vaccine yet, and it's not right that somebody should be getting a third if some other people can't even get there first there's some logic to that yeah um i think that's true um again that's a little bit more of a not a canadian issue because uh you know there's much more even and free access here to vaccines than in many places in the world and so there will be places where people have the resources to get the one they want and as many doses of it as they want, but that means somebody else won't get that dose. So they're just 
trying to um, provide a guidance that uh, fills their mandate, which is to, you know, think about the health care of the world, not just industrialized countries or, or, or particular areas, it's, it's a, it's, which makes it hard for them, of course, because um, there's probably no statement that the WHO can make that actually makes sense for all of the people they're responsible for, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Let me ask you about the Pfizer situation. We know that uh, they actually wanted to meet with the uh, U.S. health officials uh, to get uh, a, a request or an authorization for a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine, uh, which set off alarm bells with an awful lot of people. But is that not also very tied into to the statements we've heard from a number of other people that we may actually need a vaccine somewhere down the road, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, whatever the case might be? I mean, vaccines are, don't last forever, do they? They don't. Um well, that depends, actually. Uh, you know, the smallpox vaccine, we all got it once. Mm-hmm. And that was that's the one extreme of the, the spectrum. As you know, a lot of other vaccines, there's a recommendation, like the tetanus vaccine, I think that the recommendation still is to get a booster every 10 years if you're someone who may be at risk for exposure to, to that. Um, it, it depends. And, 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 and so for each vaccine... Historically, what's gone on is public health has monitored um, whether or not people need boosters and based on data have come up with guidelines on a vaccine by vaccine basis. And that's the intention here, too. So the uh, sure Pfizer has you know, their own thoughts about this yeah. and, and, and are saying that, you know, they're going to get ready to provide a third dose. But the CDC in the United States is, is technically who has the authority to to give a guidance around how many doses of any vaccine. And so there's a little bit of um, back and forth there because the CDC is saying, well, you know, we're monitoring the situation and we have not yet seen any evidence that compels us to think people need a third dose. And so we'll see how this plays out. In places in the world like Israel where they were very quick to get you know, the majority of their population to two doses, they've still seen uh, variants come in and circulate and cause some level of infection. But from the point of view of public health, the vast majority of those people, um, and over 90% of people who had been twice vaccinated, even if they got a bit sick, they didn't end up in the hospital. They got a bit sick. Mm-hmm. And, and so... The, the goal of, uh, you know, of any healthcare system is to not unduly burden the healthcare system so that it's available for all the other diseases and conditions that people need to get treated for. And it um, doesn't create the problem that has happened during this pandemic in some places. So uh, from a public health point of view, the degree of protection that people who have been vaccinated twice right now is sufficient it meets the goals of public health and so there's no reason to suggest people may yet need a third dose but over time uh, the immunity from the two doses is going to wane it always does we also don't know yet for this virus what level you need to be protected so we can watch the level settle down and that's what Pfizer see uh, in their data but they don't know um, what matters because we haven't been doing this long enough. Exactly. So this is, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, a work in progress. Doctor, it's a 
great honor to have you on the program to talk about this and, and to uh, to put some perspective on this. I mean, we hear headlines and, and read stuff out of context, and people can just jump off the deep end and think, oh, my God, uh, it's not going to work anymore. And I'm glad you were able to tell us exactly uh, what the lay of the land is here, and, and I think I've probably assuage a lot of the concerns. Thanks for this today. Well, no problem. Talk again soon. Thanks yeah. again, Doctor. Doctor Brian Lichty from, uh, of course, uh, McMaster's Immunology Research Center. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about another government initiative right now, and uh, it is about well infrastructure and about uh, transit and public transit. We know that the government, the provincial government, that is, has been pretty busy making announcements around the province, and the tally right now is uh, they seem to have committed to about $60 billion in transit projects over the next decade. Now, there's a pandemic. There's also a labor shortage that is seemingly looming right now, and this is a real problem that the government doesn't seem to have addressed, and it may have a, a huge, huge impact on this. Industries, we are told, are now facing labor shortages with many employees leaving one business, looking for another one, maybe better perks, more money. Global's Ann Gaviola has more on what impact this is actually having on the businesses themselves. Employers who can't ante up can try hiring more junior workers and training them, but there are no guarantees they won't go elsewhere in this kind of market. Now, where this is a little strange is that we actually also have a lot of joblessness. Even with a large number of people not working, there are a rising number of job vacancies. The problem is there's a wedge in the labor market, and that is a reluctance to return to work at this time, especially in the sectors that are face-to-face services, where people might be still a little wary of the virus. Whether it's safety concerns, an inability to secure childcare, or a growing number of people opting to take a break to reskill or reassess. The labor squeeze is expected to tighten this summer, though Canada is on track to surpass countries like the U.S. and the U.K. in vaccination rates. It's only just starting to catch up to them when it comes to labor headaches. And Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. So what kind of an impact is this going to have on some of the commitments that the, uh, the Ford government has made towards public transit? It's a good question. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Stephen Blay. Stephen is the MPP for Orleans up in the Ottawa area. He's also the transportation critic for the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, Stephen, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Yeah, pleasure. Good morning. Nice to you. You, you've heard a lot of the announcements, Stephen, about what the government plans to do. There's some up in the Ottawa area, as you know, Hamilton, London. There's a lot of, uh, of commitment right now. And, and the phrase they always used was shovel ready, uh, which sounds wonderful. It means, hey, let's get going. But if there's nobody holding the shovel, nothing's going to get done. Uh, what about the labor shortage? What about some of these other factors? Well, certainly the availability of labor is an important factor when, when considering major infrastructure projects and, and staying on time and on, on budget. You know, obviously the ability uh, for uh, workers to have choice and to be and to be able to move and, and make the decisions that are best uh, for them and their families are uh, valuable things uh, and valuable rights uh, for, for workers. Uh, but you, you do need that 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 bulk group of people who are uh, trained or able to be trained and who will be stable in order to build major infrastructure projects. That's certainly a challenge that the government needs to address. And at the moment, uh, the government really hasn't demonstrated uh, that they have any capacity to deliver on any of these transit projects. They've been talking about them for a long time and only just recently uh, got shovels in the ground on the first one. Let me ask you about that and, and about maybe the you know the the possibility the the reality of trying to get a lot of this stuff done before you got into provincial politics you're a city councillor in, in ottawa so you know all about this and you know that you can say hey we're going to do you know a b c and d this year uh but it, it it depends on whether or not there's enough workers to get everything done you can't be in five different places at once and accomplish everything there's only so many uh potential workers available for this and and that's happening at certainly at the municipal level and you saw that i'm sure in ottawa 
with some of the big projects that the Ottawa Council had to undertake, but it's certainly happening provincially too. There's a lot of commitment here that, that we have to wonder, is it all going to get done in a timely fashion or is it going to get done at all? You know, it's a very good question. You know, something that, that Doug Ford and his government, they've explicitly decided to get into an area with, you know, the construction of transit, which has typically been uh, a municipal uh, municipal domain, especially when we're talking about very localized projects like the one in Hamilton and like the, the, the four uh, in Toronto. Um, what I can tell you from my experience in Ottawa, just like uh, a good prize fighter going into a fight, your game plan only survives uh, the first punch. When you're building a massive transit project like this, your game plan and your schedule really only survives the first uh, the first shovel. There will be things that come up, whether there are labor shortages, whether there are issues in construction, uh, whether there are issues related to the pandemic and how that plays out uh, in the fall and into the future that are very difficult to foresee a- a- ahead of time. Uh, what will be important for the government will be important for residents of Hamilton as as you go through the, the your your planning project is the ability for the government to respond and respond to residents in a, in a timely and reasonable fashion, to be open and transparent uh, about the situation, to deal with all those day-to-day issues that are going to come up during construction that are not typically the domain of provincial politicians. When we're talking about noise complaints and construction detours and all the kind of nitty-gritty ins and outs of actually building something, that's most typically done by a municipality or region, uh, people that have a, a very direct and, and personal relationship with residents and, and business leaders on the ground. And that's not, generally speaking, been the forte of, of provincial governments. And that's going to be critical as we move forward in these projects is how they deal with those day-to-day issues. And that's something that we're going to be keeping on top of them for. How comfortable are you with that? And, and you know, the, the fact that it just, infrastructure on Ontario is supposed to be an arm's length body, but we all know that, you know, let's face it, the government really calls the shots in all of these situations. Uh, we had a horrific situation with infrastructure on Ontario when it came to building the new stadium for the Commonwealth Games a few years ago. It was about a year late and cost a lot more money than they said it was going to do, but they're, they're in charge. Uh, with infrastructure Ontario's mandate now from the government, are you comfortable uh, that they're going to be able to handle all these projects? Well, it's a lot to handle at the same time, right? There's the, there's the four uh, priority transit projects in, in Toronto. You've got uh, the Hamilton project and, and the, the government's other uh, in, initiatives. And as I said, the, the provincial government is not best suited to deal with on-the-ground issues in communities. That's really where cities, regions local leaders uh, have expertise and, and, and have experience. And that often those small issues turn into those bigger delays. It's the, uh, you know, issue A pops up that the community is upset about during consultation and someone gets involved to try to solve their problem and you go through that process and that just builds delays into the schedule. In, in addition to all that, they're trying to, to manage five, six major projects all at the same time. That requires a certain, uh, a, a certain skill set. And we're doing this in the middle of the pandemic. As I've, uh, as I've said before, Doug Ford and his government haven't really demonstrated any success in building uh, major uh, pieces of infrastructure. They've been talking about them for a long time. They haven't been able to, to, to deliver uh, on much. And as, as we recall, even with the Hamilton project, it was during the campaign, we're going to promise to do it. During the first budget, uh, we promised to do it. Then we're going to cancel it. Wasted time uh, and energy and uh, debating it and going back and forth. Uh, and now they're 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 finally coming back uh, finally coming back to the table, and so all that time has now been wasted. Instead of just you know having a vision or going with the city's vision, and and allowing local leaders who are best positioned to make those kinds of decisions to to lead the way. 
what was the situation? Maybe give us some uh, some background on, on what happened in Ottawa. And, and your point's well taken, by the way, that uh, all the best laid plans for any of these projects uh, pretty much stop as soon as you put the shovel on the ground because you don't know what you're going to find. And, and you look at some of the, the things that happened with the, with the LRT in Ottawa, Stephen, and, and you were there to see that happening. And I mean, you went through two mayors, you went through cave-ins. I mean, there's a lot of cost overruns and things that were not anticipated. And uh, and you, uh, Ottawa City Council, had to deal with 90% of this. You had the you know the blessing of the government of the day, and they were. They, God bless them. They came through with the money for this, but you know, the, you're the one that had to take the phone calls from irate citizens and say, "What's going on here? Uh, is Infrastructure Ontario going to take on that responsibility?" Yeah, and, and that's one of the biggest challenges with with how this is with this, how this is happening. Out. Who you know is the Minister of Infrastructure, or the Minister of Transportation, going to be taking those calls and leading those those public meetings? Is it going to be an unaccountable uh, public servant or bureaucrat, or is it going to be even more unaccountable contractor from one of the from one of the members of the uh, of the consortia that are that are end up go- going to end up actually doing the building and designing and the construction, etc. In Ottawa, we had a plan in 2006 uh, to build light rail uh, through the center of the city into the south end of the city. Uh, conservative government uh, cancelled, uh, effectively cancelled that plan after the municipal election. We then spent uh, what four six years uh, debating the new version of the plan, uh, wasting you know tens if not hundred million dollars on consultants and lawyers. Uh, and uh, cancelling of contracts, and then, as you said, we we finally uh, put the shovels in the ground. Uh, uh, I think it was in 2012, uh, give or take. Um, and you know, we experienced we experienced challenges uh, during construction. Uh, it is not always as easy as uh, it's made out to be at, at the beginning. And, and how you deal with those issues along the way is, is an important part of leaving residents with the confidence that you know what you're uh, that you know what you're doing. So when a when a a problem arises. How how do you deal with it? How quickly do you deal with it? How do you deal with the consequences? As unknown or unrealized issues come up, whether it's about noise or detours or all these other uh, very localized issues come up, how are those dealt with? How are they addressed? How are uh, are people listening, etc. And again, I go back to that's where uh, local leaders, whether it's uh, city councils or business leaders locally have the most understanding and, and, and influence in their communities. I'm not sure that, um, you know, bureaucrats uh, from, from Toronto or, you know, people who are working for these contractors are really in the best position to represent the interests of residents once, once things are under construction. I mean, it's a long way from, you know, making an announcement at a podium, as, as you know, Minister Mulroney did here in Hamilton, and, and it happened in Ottawa and in, in Toronto, too, with the subway projects and the LRT projects that they have there, to actually putting the shovel in the ground. But with your experience municipally and provincially, though, Stephen, let me, let me ask you, when you, you add layers like this uh, to, to a project, uh, certainly at the municipal level there's going to be some responsibility, uh, but then you've got Infrastructure Ontario, uh, you've got subcontractors, you've got other members of the consortium that are going to be doing some of the work, and then you've got the provincial level uh, above all that supposedly overseeing it. Uh, don't you find that the more layers that you add, the, 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 the less accountability there is? It just seems to be kicked up the ladder? Well, it definitely makes it uh, difficult to understand who is ultimately responsible. Um, and so inevitably what happens is that uh, often what happens, I don't say it's, I shouldn't say it's inevitable, often what happens is that uh, the responsibility gets diffused and then no one ends up taking responsibility. If the province is going to lead these projects, if they're going to provide 100% of the money and the provincial agency is going to effectively run uh, the, the bidding and design and, and, and construction, then at the end of the day, 
the, the, the Minister of Infrastructure and Minister of Transportation are going to have to take uh, responsibility. The challenge is, I doubt very highly that either of those two people are going to be at the community meetings, uh, taking questions from a hall of 100 or 200 people. I doubt very uh, much that they're going to be in the day-to-day meetings about how uh, XYZ issue uh, is going to be managed. And so it creates a, a dynamic where you're, a, you're you know, uh, you're very reliant on, on, on the information that you're getting and, and you have to have the, 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 the processes and tools and levers in place to make sure that that information is, is uh, the information that you need and that it's, that it's accurate. Uh, you know, we saw, in, you know, Ottawa, I'm very proud of what we did in Ottawa. I think we built uh, ultimately a very good uh, uh, train and uh, we're now building the second stage, which is going to connect uh, the overwhelming majority of Ottawa residents so within a very short distance uh, of LRT. Uh, but it hasn't been without its uh, challenges and and uh, how those challenges get dealt with at the time and how you try to foresee those challenges is as big a part of the uh, of the of the problem or the 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 risk in doing some of these things as the actual design construction and expense of doing it all. Well, the concern here is when you start running into cost overruns, and God forbid it should happen, but you've been in government long enough to know that it happens a lot uh, when things like this start to occur. And and there could be any number of reasons, some of them legitimate, some of them, well, we don't want to go all the way down that road, but it's it's problematic. But then you're starting to get into, as you say, responsibility, and secondly, uh, accountability, and and who's going to cover the cost on this. And and we saw that, again, I don't want to harpen back to the stadium issue too much here in Hamilton, uh, but the city was was in litigation for years after that to try to recoup some of the money and it was one of these well it's that responsibility no it's not them it goes back and forth like this it's it's a quagmire and and you know the community the local community in this case hamilton or ottawa or toronto uh are, are the ones that are, the, the concern right now is that they're going to get left on the hook for some of this if not all of it yeah and that, and that that goes back to whatever the contractual arrangement is so as i understand it in hamilton uh the council has authorized the negotiations of the commencement of, of discussing yep. the, the memorandum of understanding. Uh, the details of what that of when it, what's in that MLU are going to be important. Those are probably going to be kept pretty high level until the actual, you know, uh, tender package and everything uh, goes out the door. There are, uh, you know, a project the size and scope of, of, of Hamilton LRT or, or any of these projects in Toronto. Those contracts are going to be thousands of pages long. There are going to be lots of little ins and outs, and it's going to be critically important for uh, for people, uh, for those who are interested, and for for uh, elected officials to be intimately familiar with the details of, uh, of of what's in those documents to ensure that at the end of the day, uh, taxpayers protected. Whether they're property taxpayers in Hamilton or or income taxpayers across the province, there's only one taxpayer. We need to make sure that uh, taxpayers are, are protected and. Uh, in addition to that, that in, in the case of the Hamilton LRT, that the residents of Hamilton uh, can have confidence that the project is, is moving forward in a responsible way and that it's going to deliver the intended results. You know, transit is an expensive business to be in. It's critically important to move people about a, about a city. Uh, it's critically important for the life of uh, post-secondary uh, institutions and, and ensuring that there's a broad area by which uh, students can choose to live and, and still pursue their still pursue their studies. Uh, but it is a very expensive business to be in. And so, what does the construction of these types of projects do to the cost of taking transit every day? And what's the government's plan to address the rising cost of public transit day to day for users, whether it's uh, on on their monthly pass or whether it's their single ride pass? And at the moment, you know, there isn't there isn't really a lot of conversation 
from this provincial government about what they're going to do to address the actual real cost of taking transit every day. A lot of questions and not a whole lot of answers at this stage. Uh, I'm probably chomping a bit to try to get back into question period, but that's not going to be for a few months. Uh, Stephen, thank you for spending some time with us today. Really do appreciate it. We'll stay in touch. Yeah, thank you. Bill. Have a great day. Take care. Stephen Blay, IPP for Orleans and uh, the transportation critic for the Liberal Party at the Ontario level. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, Premier Doug Ford's uh, controversial new campaign finance law is again being challenged in court by unions who argue it is a government interference with a fair and democratic process. Now, you may remember that uh, they introduced this and passed this. They are a majority government, of course, in Ontario. Uh, and uh, it was challenged then, and uh, the court at that point ruled that it is unconstitutional. Well, uh, the Ford government responded by invoking the Charter of Rights and Freedoms Notwithstanding Clause for the first time in Ontario history to ram through the legislation. And, uh, well, this is where we are right now with court challenges uh, and a number of people being very upset about this. Joining us to talk about this is Duff Conagher. Duff is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, who has been watching this file very closely. Duff, uh, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. My pleasure, Bill. You, uh, you predicted that, uh, that unions were going to get involved and that there was going to be a legal challenge to this. Uh, they have come together on this right now, 46-page filing coming uh, just about a month after uh, you and I had talked about this. Uh, no surprise to you, I suppose. No, not at all. And um, not surprising also the tack that they're taking to attack the legislation. They're challenging it as a violation of Section 3 of the Charter, which uh, ensures free and fair elections and the right to vote in free and fair elections, and if they win, that section cannot be uh, overturned by the notwithstanding clause. So the provincial government would not be able to um, use the notwithstanding clause to to uh, override a court ruling in favor of the union's position. And uh, Democracy Watch is uh, right now um, just seeking a lawyer to intervene in this case as well. Maybe if you could just spend a couple of minutes, Duff, uh, reminding our listeners about the, the Ford legislation and why there is so much concern about what, what was passed. Yeah, the problem was that the courts ruled that the, uh, the changes that the Ford government had made in the spring uh, with this Bill 254 were unconstitutional because they essentially um, had no evidence that... Uh, the limits were reasonable, that they were setting on what voters, individual voters, and also citizen groups and and uh, businesses could spend on advertising during uh, the 12 months leading up to the election. And the old limits were $600,000 uh, over six months. Was That's how much you could spend. And that was set arbitrarily by the Liberal government and actually uh, challenged by the unions. Uh, that was the win Liberal government. And what the Ford government did this spring was they kept the limit at $600,000 but extended the time period uh, to 12 months before the election. And it covers not just ads saying vote for or vote against a party or a candidate. It also covers advertising about any issue the government is dealing with at any time. And so the court said, well, you can't just limit free speech to criticize the government's actions and decisions for a full year before an election with such an arbitrary limit where you haven't shown you know, any evidence that $600,000 is a reasonable limit to put on advertising by voters and, and citizens groups uh, pushing their own agenda or criticizing the government's actions. 
When this was introduced uh, some months ago, one of the main criticisms about this was that it was basically an attempt to muzzle a number of those groups that, that, that wanted to have a voice during the election and have had that voice in past elections. Is, is that a fair criticism? Uh, well, we don't know whether it's a muzzle because there hasn't been a study of what a reasonable amount uh, uh, in terms of spending would be. Um, is six, $600,000 maybe the right figure? We don't know. The unions say it's way too low because the only way to reach voters is through television advertising. Democracy Watch's position is slightly different from that, which is that there are reasonable limits and they need to be set reasonably through an independent commission, which wouldn't take long to do at all, and this is what Ford should have done. Strike an independent commission with the cooperation of the opposition parties. Have them just call up all the TV outlets, radio, social media, print, and find out how much it costs to reach voters. And that would be the, the limit on any issue. You'd be able to spend that amount because that would allow you to reach every voter in Ontario and uh, make your point heard. And so uh, instead of doing that, Ford just said, no, it's my way or the highway, and I don't care what the courts think, and I, I'm just going to override it, uh, even if it's unconstitutional. And then also be dishonest about it, because Ford also claimed that uh, Ontario had the highest limits pre-election of anybody. And it's, it's just not true. The federal limits are higher. Uh, the B.C. limits are higher. They also only cover two months before an election, not, not a, a full year. And so uh, Ford has been dishonest, unethical, undemocratic, and unconstitutional in this move. And uh, that's why I expect the courts will reject it again. And part of the case is also challenging Ford's arbitrary use without any consultation. Uh, it's just a completely undemocratic and also unconstitutional use of the notwithstanding clause to override the court's ruling. The, the tenure of, of the, the government's response to this is, is troubling to an awful lot of people. Uh, Doug Downey, who of course is the Attorney General, has already uh, been quoted as saying, we fundamentally believe the outcome of elections should be determined by individual Ontario voters and not American-style special interest groups and wealthy pop-up organizations. Uh, interesting characterization of, of people that have some legitimate concerns about elections and as you and I have discussed in the past of a lot a lot of these groups are not targeting necessarily the political party they're talking about issues that need to be addressed uh, autism there's a number of different things people that that have some concerns about the the legislation or lack of legislation that the government of the day may be putting forth or not putting forth as the case might be or addressing the problems do those people not have a right to voice those concerns they do and uh, again, the limits don't cover issuing news releases, holding events, sending out an email to your members, posting something on social media, as long as you don't pay for it to be advertised, uh, meaning distributed to people, uh, people's accounts on social media. So you do have a right to speak, um, but it, the question is whether the advertising limit is too low. So it's not a gag law, as some people claim it is because you do have this right to do all these other ways of communicating. But um, the question is, is it just an arbitrary amount? And it, as you mentioned, it covers every issue. It's not just about election advertising, vote for or vote against. It covers any ad about any issue. And another part of it is, every time you spend $1,000, you have to file a new report with the government. And is that really necessary? You know, at the, at the federal level, 
you don't have to file any reports until you spend $10,000. And then you just file a second report um, during before the uh, election day and then a report after election day on all your spending. Um, that, you know, for small groups, if you have to, and even for large groups, if you have to file a new report every $1,000 you spend, that's an administrative burden that I think goes too far and uh, just increases the cost of speaking. And so, uh, and it has to be an audited report as well. So you have to hire an auditor, which is a lot of, very difficult for small groups. And the overall context is that not only did Ford pass this to try and stop th- uh, the big third-party unions from uh, advertising, most because they mostly advertise against the PCs, but he also doubled the donation limit, which greatly favors his party because uh, the PC party, the Tories, get much more of their money from top donors than other parties. They get about 70% of their money in 2020 from people who donated $1,000 or more. And the next party, uh, even close to that, is the Liberals with 25% of their donors donating $25,000 or more. So the PC uh, party is supported by wealthy donors much more, and he doubled the donation limit, which helps his party. And he also uh, maintained the per-vote funding, and uh, that per-vote funding goes more to the, the conservatives for this upcoming, upcoming election than it does to the other parties. So in every way, he would try to rig the election unfairly in favor of his party. And uh, that's part of this case as well, that he's changed the whole system in order to thwart opposition and help his party, and done it arbitrarily and dishonestly and unethically and unconstitutionally. So I think the courts uh, will rule in favor of this, and the limits will be gone. And hopefully Ford, what he'll do then, is actually have a consultation with the other parties and come up with reasonable limits set in a reasonable way. Has there ever been a a, a comprehensive study done about this? I I know you know the history on this, but just to remind our listeners, uh, I guess there was a case uh, before the courts years ago. Stephen Harper, when he was with the National Citizen Coalition, uh, basically argued that there should be no limits at all. Spend whatever you can raise and and knock yourself out. And the court said, no, you can't do that. That, That's an abuse of the system. But did anybody actually say, okay, let's find a number, or did they just pull this out of the air? No, they didn't. And the courts defer to Parliament, to legislatures, uh, governments across the country, and allow them a lot of leeway to come up with what they think is reasonable whenever they're limiting Canadians' rights. But in other cases, they've been required to provide much more evidence that it was a reasonable limit than in this case. And the Supreme Court of Canada, in that case that Prime Minister Harper brought before he was uh, Prime Minister, they actually got it wrong uh, in terms of uh, the judges that voted against the the limits that the government had set. The limits were $150,000 during the election campaign period. And then, and a few of the judges, including uh, then Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, she said, oh, that's not a reasonable limit. And she relied on some evidence that was wrong, that uh, that just didn't actually use the the real costs of running a full-page advertisement across the country. And so even the Supreme Court of Canada was basing their decision, uh, the ones who opposed it, on evidence that was not accurate. So that's a big problem. We want courts to be making realistic decisions, and especially when it comes to limiting Canadians' rights. And that's why we need this study done. I, I'm currently gathering some information because we plan to intervene in this case. And uh, 
I'm hoping to uh, be able to get the information from uh, all the different media outlets and, and uh, the, the ad buyers and find out what it does. What does it actually cost to reach voters across Ontario and also federally? And that's what the limit should be because that would be reasonable. But it would have to be the limit for every issue, not just that you can spend that amount once in the 12 months leading up to election. If the government proposed uh, an action or made a decision, you should be able to spend that amount every time because that's what it would cost to reach all voters about that issue. So um, that's uh, something that uh, we're doing as Democracy Watch and, as I say, planning to intervene in the case with our call for reasonable democratic limits set in a reasonable democratic way. My, my experience with this is... is the discussions I've had with people over the years about elections, they look at this opportunity with, previous to the Ford, uh, of course, uh, you know, massaging the existing legislation stuff, as their one chance to actually have a voice in this and to bring their issue up uh, instead of necessarily the political parties determining the agenda for the election. These people say, look, at, we need the people of Ontario to understand this issue and what's going on. And... And, and if that's going to be taken away from them or it's going to be limited to them, uh, they're going to feel as if they're not part of the process and, and they're not being heard. And that's that's part of the frustration I think they're feeling. Yes, especially for small groups. Yeah. Where every time you spend $1,000, you're going to have to have an audited report filed. I mean, that audited report is going to cost you probably a couple hundred dollars. So it's a, a, a huge administrative burden for a smaller group. Um and you have to reg- I think you should have to register, as the law says, mm-hmm. after you spend $500, because everyone should know who is advertising during the election. But to then require a new audited report every time you spend another $1,000, that's just too much. That's, you know, when, when the government um, limits our rights, part of the rules are that it has to be a minimal impairment in order to reach the goal. And the goal is to not allow... Uh, interest groups and individual voters to overwhelm a candidate with the amount they spend. They don't really overwhelm the parties because the parties are always spending exponentially more than any interest group is. But they could overwhelm a candidate in a local riding. You know, when the candidates have spending limits of uh, around eighty to a hundred thousand dollars, depending on the size of the riding. And if you had ten individuals spend six hundred thousand dollars each trying to defend that, or, or, or sorry, the, the limit in a a riding is, is uh, $24,000, and if you had 10 people spend that, that's $240,000, and the candidate is only able to spend $80,000 in total defending themselves. So you need limits for uh, interest groups and voters that are fair because the candidates and the parties have limits, but they have to be fair. They can't be arbitrary. And what Ford has done is said, I just came up with this figure, you know, the when liberals arbitrarily came up with a figure of $600,000 over six months, I'm saying $600,000 over 12 months is reasonable. The government's own experts in the first case that the unions brought said, had said already that $600,000 over six months was reasonable. And so the judge just said, well, if, if your own experts, government, say that $600,000 over six months is reasonable, then by definition, $600,000 over 12 months cannot be reasonable. It must be too much. So the government didn't put forward any evidence that they had set a reasonable limit. And uh, unless they come up with that evidence, I think they're going to lose again. And they should, because we want policy set based on evidence and reality, not just Doug Ford choosing a number off the top of his head. 
and saying, you know, my way or the highway, and, and I'll use the notwithstanding clause to violate all Ontario's voters' rights just because they want to, because they want to protect my party and, and try and rig the election in, in favor of my party winning. That's not allowed. That, that I think, will be ruled by the courts as un- an unconstitutional use of the, the notwithstanding clause to violate Ontario voters' rights. We've got about a minute left here, Duff, but there's one other point I wanted you to address. And, and if this gets, or when this gets in front of a, a judge, uh, this is going to be argued on, on legal grounds. It's the, the, take the emotion out of this. And I know there's a lot of emotion in this right now, but uh, with your legal background, you understand that. I know the, uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is intervening as a subordinate. The, the head of that is, a, is also a, a legal mind. Uh, do you feel there's a strong enough case to be able to, to point and counterpoint the, the government's legal arguments here? Yes, yeah. The, um, th- these kind of issues with regard to political finance have been decided under Section 3 of the Charter in the past uh, by the Supreme Court of Canada. And part of the right to a free and fair election is, is to allow people to have a voice uh, in the election process. And uh, also there have been legal commentators and also courts who have said, well, yes, the notwithstanding clause is there allows the government to override rights, even if a court strikes down a law, but it can't be used in an arbitrary way. It's supposed to be used in a democratic way after consultation. And what Ford did was invoke the notwithstanding clause two days after the government lost in court. He probably didn't even talk to his own MPPs in the Tory party. So uh, I think just the arbitrary, dishonest, unethical nature of this uh, and, uh, of course, uh, undemocratic and overall unconstitutional. I think the, the courts will um, essentially send a message back to the government that, yes, you can set limits. That's been established by the Supreme Court of Canada, but you have to do it in a reasonable democratic way, not an arbitrary way that just stomps on voters' rights. Very important issue, especially with the election, uh, well, now less than a year away. Yeah, it uh, will def- come, the court case will be heard on an expedited basis, as the initial case was, because the limits are already in place, right? So the violation mm-hmm. of rights is already happening, and the courts will deal with this. I expect we'll have a ruling by the end of September. It'll move quite quickly now that it's been filed. That's good to know. Duff, thanks as always for the update on this. Really appreciate it. We'll stay in touch. Yes, I'll keep you updated on our intervention and uh, the case overall, and happy to talk again. Look forward to it. Thanks again, Duff. Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, at the concern about the campaign finance legislation from the Ford government. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.